It's time to rethink everything, to redo the rulebook, to explore smarter ways to work and rediscover what's possible. It's time for a fresh take on how technology and creativity are changing the way work gets done. I'm Brian Rowley, and this is The Big Rethink. Today's episode's all about education, the future of ed tech, and the shifts we can expect to see in the coming years. Our guest, Brian Alexander, is an award-winning author, speaker, and futurist, currently serving as a senior scholar at Georgetown University. Brian, welcome to the show. So happy to have you. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So, Brian, I know, you know, as we were prepping for this conversation, you know, I know that there's a tremendous amount of experience and knowledge that you have in the education space. Uh, You obviously work with a variety of experts and colleagues. You know, can you give our listeners, um, just before we get into some of this, a brief overview of sort of the work that you do at Georgetown University and sort of what led you to become a leader in the future of sort of education conversation? Oh, sure. Thank you. And I appreciate uh, all the compliments right up to the end. Uh, (laughs) uh, I'm a futurist. That is, I I help people anticipate and strategically plan about the future. Uh, My main domain is the future of higher education. So I work with colleges and universities literally around the world, as well as people in academically adjacent spaces. So I work with state governments, for example, national governments, nonprofits, and publishers. And I, I help them just try to be more creative and more strategic about where the academic world might be headed. Uh, so in doing so, I do a great deal of research. My most recent book, for example, Academia Next, is the outgrowth of some of them. Um, but to your point about conversations, I felt, oh, maybe 10 years ago that the, the discourse around, the conversations around education were getting kind of stale. Um, they were kind of getting repetitive. Uh, time and again, I would hear the same things that were a little bit dull in the mid-1990s. And then... Also, that they were getting more heated and people were more, at times, more interested in staking out positions and having conversation. So, six years ago, I decided to host a weekly video conference program that would try to offer a different way of having these kind of discussions. And we're going now in our sixth year of uh, having these future transform events where we connect one or several wonderful guests along with up to 900 participants from across higher education to have a conversation about some particular spot of the future of higher ed, be it the future of open education resources, classroom technology, demographics, enrollment, pedagogy, and so on. And it's, it's, it's very rewarding, especially because it's not a traditional webinar. We don't have a canned speaker. It's all about interaction between all the participants and uh, our wonderful guests. And I think that creates a, a really needed space. And over the past four years, conversations in general have become, I think, rougher and more difficult to have. But as we look ahead to the rest of the 21st century, the challenges we face require a great deal of discussion, a great deal of interaction. Uh, democracy itself needs a great deal of deliberation in order to function. So I hope we can do that. And I hope in my small way that the Future Transform can do that. Uh, you mentioned Georgetown University. I, I teach there in their graduate program on learning design and technology. I teach some classes on the future of the university, on education and technology, and even a, a seminar in gaming and education, uh, which is absolutely delightful. I, I really enjoy the work there. 
You know, it's um, I'm sure the past year, um, you know, you mentioned that this is this, these conversations are, are well needed. And, you know, I'm sure that the past year, year and a half has probably moved them into even uh, a more relevant space, um, given all the challenges that we have seen as a result of the pandemic. And quite honestly, you know, when you look at the education space as a whole, I don't think there's any space that's probably um, received uh, as much flux um, as you've probably seen in that space. So, you know, one of the things that um, I would like to understand is, you know, over the past year, you know, we've already, we've obviously seen this evolution in higher education. Can you talk a little bit about how you've seen or some of the things that you've seen that have happened over the past year? And then sort of how did technology sort of play a key part in, in, in either solving for some of that or enhancing some of that or, or, or areas to sort of expand some of what you've seen? Well, the past year and a half, we've seen two huge developments, especially in the United States. One is the COVID-19 pandemic. And it's one that I really wish I could speak of in the past tense, but unfortunately, it's still very much present. And higher education responded in in a whole series of ways that are important and really worth breaking down. I mean, one is... To back up, we often speak about the pandemic as unprecedented, and that's that's unfortunately wrong. Uh, the historical record is rife with pandemics, so there's ample precedent. But what was unprecedented was that in the spring of last year, last March, we took the supermajority of American higher education and flipped it from face-to-face to online. We did that in a matter of weeks, sometimes in a matter of days, and with precious little in the way of resources. And it, it was a shambles in some ways. It was emergency. It was done, you know, with string and bailing wire and duct tape, but we made it work. And that's really both unprecedented and extraordinary. And since then, since April 2020, higher education has been looking to improve that. Every day we have projects that are out there to try to improve teaching, everything from how to make the technology work better to changing pedagogy to changing support strategies to also trying to care for students in a wraparound way and make sure that they not only succeed but thrive. So that's that's a revolution in American higher education, and we're going to be thinking about this and dealing with it for years to come. And you could see it, for example, in planning for this fall, where a lot of campuses gleefully, happily tried to return to entirely face-to-face learning. But the Delta wave has really made that much more difficult. Uh, The second huge thing that happened was our national reckoning or uh, awakening about racial injustice. And it started off last summer, the murder of George Floyd and these enormous, enormous public mobilization in the middle of the pandemic. And so in higher education, we've been rethinking racism and race all up and down the hierarchy of our institutions, everything from what to do about the public symbolism of monuments and building names to trying to revise our curriculum uh, to expunge traces of racism while also grappling with our institutional history. You mentioned Georgetown, uh, where I work. The undergraduate student body voted to tax itself in order to pay reparations to the descendants of people who the institution enslaved in the uh, 19th century. Um, All of this has been showing up in research, where drives, for example, to try to have more citations by minoritized scholars. And we're still thinking about this and still working on it. And I think we're going to see a lot of just 
kind of Brownian motion of change happening in higher education for the next few years as a result of that. So those are two major, major developments. And, and just if I can just add to that really quickly, the, the reawakening about racism and also the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, uh, they hit the United States and academia in the U.S. when our institutions are already under a great deal of rising stress. Uh, For example, the total enrollment in American higher education peaked in 2012 and has gone down every year, in fact, every semester since. Right now, we're a little less than a 10% down from that peak of 2012, which is pretty extraordinary when we're thinking about or as a nation where we're convinced that we need to have more and more people with more and more post-secondary education. Uh, We have a lot of institutions with financial stress uh, for multiple reasons, which I'm happy to talk about. And before the pandemic, a lot of institutions were still struggling and trying to grapple with technology and how best to use it for their institutions. And there are more and more challenges, including demographics, I'm happy to talk about. But my point is, we were already kind of shaky when we got hit with COVID and when we started trying to reckon with and uh, improve our understanding along race. Yeah, I mean, you've given us a lot to talk about. Um, And, you know, let's start with the pandemic piece to it, because, you know, as we look at this and we talk about sort of the shifts that we're seeing, I always look at education as, you know, the audience, you know, you said that, you know, we made it work um, as it results to the shift um, that was necessary. And, you know, when you look at that, Um, I'll ask you this because I'm sure it's sort of out there. I kind of look at it and say, when we say made it work, I I would assume you're you're talking about from the perspective of the student, from the perspective of the university and its faculty, and then also from the perspective of the parental guardian, right, who has a child (laughs) who may be attending the university. I mean, do do we really think that in all of those cases uh, that each of them would agree that, yes, we, we did it and we got there? Or, or are there learnings that we have as we sort of head into the coming school year um, that we should be aware of and understand sort of the roles that everybody plays in sort of making that a successful school year? Because there's no doubt there's challenges that are ahead of this year, right? Um, as you mentioned, uh, many universities went in the direction initially of we will have everybody back in classrooms. And as a result of sort of some of what we've seen from the variant, um, that's not always going to be possible. So as a result of sort of those three categories, you know, what are some of the learnings and what are the roles? that people have as they sort of head into sort of this this coming school year? I think at the top level, one of the learnings is that we have a job to do of improving teaching and learning, and we need to dedicate our institutions to it. Uh, I don't think in my adult lifetime I've ever seen higher education this focused on improving pedagogy. And so this is a great thing to have. I mean, and, and this this happens. You you can see it playing out in areas as diverse as uh, supporting teaching and learning centers, or trying to support the scholarship of teaching, as well as trying to test out as many different pedagogies as possible. And we can drill down into that. I mean, for example, we have the uh, interesting divide between synchronous and asynchronous teaching. Is synchronous live, what you and I are doing right now, having a conversation in real time, has all kinds of benefits. And it's, it's what the physical classroom actually is. People in a lab, people in the seminar room, people in a lecture hall. It's that live synchronous feeling, that, that fresh feeling of give and take, that sensibility that things are happening in the moment. And that's very powerful. And we can 
can do that with a lot of technologies. Uh, asynchronous teaching and learning is the exact opposite. That's when things happen uh, remotely and remotely in time. So. We've done this before when you assign students to read a textbook or to read a novel or to go out and collect samples and bring them back. Uh, they do that to some extent on their own timing. And we already have lots of asynchronous work along these lines. They can be discussion board tools. Uh, they can evolve using plugins like, uh, say, Yellowdig to have more conversation. Uh, I have uh, exercises for my students where they edit a collaborative document together. But again, it's asynchronously. It's when they have time to do it. And that has the advantage of being more convenient to fit into students' lives. But also, the downside of being live is that we have great ideas that happen afterwards. Um, the French have this great term, uh, l'esprit d'escalier, the spirit of the staircase. You know, when you're in a party, you're having a conversation, you can't think of what to say, but as you leave, as you're going down the stairs, ah, it hits you. The right thing to say, right? Well, asynchronous learning is all about that spirit. You constantly have the chance to come back and, and fill in what you missed. So when it comes to the technology, one of the things that we learned is that synchronous is powerful, yet people have issues with it. If people do not have sufficient bandwidth, uh, at wherever they are, or if they're doing video, if they don't have a good space for doing video. Uh, similarly with audio, if they don't have enough silence, for example. Plus, there's issues with people who have neurological issues uh, and learning issues that could be overwhelmed by having 500 students in video feeds, for example. Um, now, the asynchronous has the advantage of often being less demanding in terms of bandwidth. Uh, so there's this interesting argument which says that maybe the just thing to do would be to make classes more and more asynchronous. And the other argument is, well, we, we often think of classes as live, so we need them to be more synchronous. So that's not a single learning. That's an area of debate and of style and of support in schools of thought that's happening. And we could also think about... Uh, what happens when we try to blend uh, the face-to-face -face and the online. Uh, I mean, I've done this back in the 1990s uh, when I would be teaching a class where to have people around me face-to-face, -face, but at the same time, I would have people online, either through video or through a virtual world. Uh, my colleague, uh, Brian Beatty, dubbed this high flex, uh, and the idea being that in a given high flex class, a student or faculty member could decide if they want to be there in person or online. And the pandemic gave us choices for that. You know, do faculty members who, for example, are older and, uh, and or have comorbidities not want to be in person to risk a possible infection? Students have perhaps uh, issues with getting to campus on time. Uh, and you can have that kind of mixed hybrid class environment. And we have learned how to do it. We do have practices downside is it's not easy. Uh, it takes uh, the faculty members have to really change their attitude about, I think of it as kind of like wearing bifocals. They have to be able to look both at the remote and the face-to-face -face learners at the same time. And students have to do this as well. They have to remember that their lab partner might be someone a thousand miles away. And you have to have sufficient technology for all this to happen. Um, you know, we're doing this as a podcast, so of course it, as I have, it behooves me to say the audio is important than it is. Miking is non-trivial, getting good sound, good and good audio, and all of that, much less good bandwidth. So we've learned that the HyFlex method is possible. It's just a, a heavy lift to do it. There's one more point, and then Brian, I want to I want to pause and give you a chance to to uh, to say more. Is we've learned that we need to support students 
better and not just pedagogically. Uh, there's been a big push to support student physical health, obviously, you know, what we're, everything with PPE and doing testing and so on. But we're also trying to support students' mental health. I mean, arguably, the past year and a half, the whole world has gone through a collective trauma. And we have a lot of need for therapy, for counseling, uh, for mental health treatment. So this becomes one more service that some colleges and universities will want to provide. But at the same time, students also experienced economic hardship. I mean, when we had the, with the quarantines, we had massive economic dislocation. So how many students lost jobs or had family members who lost jobs or who were made homeless as a result, or who was simply under enormous stress of potentially losing their jobs. So not only did they have the psychological stress, but they also had the economic difficulties, which led some of them to exit higher education completely and gives higher education the opportunity to better support them, both financially, but also just mentally to help them out and to reach out and make sure they're cared for. So there's a kind of 360-degree wraparound service of support right now that we're talking about in higher education, including teaching, but not just teaching. Yeah, I think that support factor is, is really important. You, you see so much of, um, you mentioned sort of the the economics uh, and the financial uh, potential losses that, that may be there as a result of people not having their jobs. But then the other side to it, too, is the reality is, you know, many of them also um, experienced loss, uh, loss of a loved one, a family member, a friend. Um, that That's also a reality. And I think, you know, Higher ed is is one place where you see that you know it's interesting. I have a niece who just started um, her she, during the pandemic started her freshman year at college, and you know my mom and dad had said you know I feel bad for her because she's not actually going to have the experience. Um, of of college, and I said, no, she is. It she she doesn't know a different experience, right? She's never she's never had that. So yes, this is different than what perhaps myself or more my sister experienced or others that we know. But to my niece, it was uh, it's only what people have told her that experience is. This is the experience that she's had, and I think. To be honest, she's adapted really well. But you're right; there's a lot of those challenges that they have just in regards to overall mental stress of a, a lot of factors that are there um, and being um, new to a school campus or quite honestly, even some of the people who have gone. Uh, I also have a nephew who graduated veterinary school and didn't have the opportunity to celebrate that graduation like many other students, right, that were there or celebrate it in a way that, you know, everyone could come together and do that. So, you know, there's a lot of these these emotional factors, I think, that play in here. But, but I guess one of the questions that I would have for you is, I mean, there's obviously many new approaches to learning um, that have come as a result and technology as well and how that learning experience um, forms as a result of the pandemic. What are some of the ones that you think are actually going to be here to stay? Well, that's a great question. And I, I just want to chime in with your point about the dealing with the losses of the pandemic yeah. besides finance, but also just the, I mean, you know, in the, in the world, we're dealing with millions of dead. Uh, in yes. the United States, we're closing in on 700,000 
uh, and those numbers are probably undercounts as well. Uh, one thing that we don't talk enough about as well is uh, long COVID or people who have been infected who are dealing with some form of tissue damage, and this may be 10 to 30% of people who have been infected. It's hard to say. Uh, and that's going to start impacting staffing of higher education. Uh, if we have staff who, for example, just have brain fog and can't function as well or who have neurological pain uh, and they need to you know, work part-time or to cut down. The same is true with students. I mean, some number of students who disenroll will be those who are just trying to deal with the effects of long COVID. Um, I, I think, you know, in terms of what's going to stay, depending on how this ends and when, uh, I think we'll see some changes to the built environment of campuses to begin with. Uh, that is, we'll probably see architecture that includes more windows, bigger windows, more doors, bigger doors, more outside interfaces for inside rooms, and perhaps more outside structures, even something you know, like a gazebo or just more porches. Uh, I mean, we saw this 100 years ago in re- response to the great influenza that peaked in 1918, and we may see some of that now. And that's, gonna, of course, going to change the spaces that we teach him. I think in many ways that the high flex experience may become a kind of baseline. Uh, That is, as we care for students more, it might not be appropriate to require all of them to be physically co-located for class sessions. Uh, It might be that as we have students, again, dealing with long COVID, but who still want to be there, or students who are afraid of successive waves of the pandemic, or as we deal with other disasters. I mean, we're right now wading into climate change. Uh, This past summer, of course, showed just around the world a whole series of spectacular disasters, and they're not going to get any better. Uh, So it may be that we're going to have more students and or faculty uh, who can't be co-present, and we're going to have to just get used to that blending of the physical and the virtual in our classrooms, uh, which means we have to rethink pedagogy, it means we have to rethink classroom design, and also our expectations. Uh, an- another aspect, if I can return to a previous point, has to do with the digital divide. Uh, I've been working on that issue for about 20 years, and I know it's been a bear to get anybody to pay attention to it. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's something that in the United States we just effectively live with, and that is that some people just don't have access to the full digital infrastructure of the modern world. Uh, They might not have the hardware. Uh, And we've already seen this where we see poorer people as well as uh, more black and Latino people tend to use cell phones for more functions and more often uh, than other people do. Uh, It means they may not have access to bandwidth. Um, that, that's often done. That's often marked by uh, by classes, but ge- geography is a major pull. Basically, the closer you are to a, a major city, the more options, the more resources you have for bandwidth, and the further away you get, uh, the fewer you have. Um, and this has been a, a just a chronic, intractable problem. And now with the pandemic, this has kind of come to the fore. Uh, it may be that Musk Starlink is the best thing that's happened to that problem yet, um, depending on how that plays out. Um, but it's an issue that we are trying really hard to think about. And there have been extreme examples. Uh, there are tribal schools, for example, where some of the population have zero internet at all. And some of those campuses actually turn to printing out and physically mailing work to students and having them mailed back. Uh, we've seen public and, and academic libraries take up roles as you know floating a cloud of Wi-Fi around the area so people can come in and get signal. Uh, we've seen college presidents drive buses with uh, Wi-Fi repeaters out into areas 
areas just to you know, float a cloud of access to people. And I think we're going to be thinking about uh, the digital divide for some time. Yeah, I, I think I think underserved communities is, um, and not just um, from an economic status perspective, but just even uh, to your point, just the reach of um, bandwidth and 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 uh, internet access is obviously one that I think you start to see much more happening in some of these areas with smart cities and and how you know you've got companies that are working to try to work with some of the carriers that are out there to sort of extend the reach beyond just the, the city itself and, and, and out to some of the rural areas. And, and I do think that's an important piece because I do think there is a tremendous amount, you know, of value in, in that access and, and being able to gain access to that digital content um, changes a person's life. Um, you know, we hear a lot about the negative impacts of the internet, but quite honestly, there's a lot of really positive impacts as a result of it as well. Absolutely. And, you know, from a learning and an education perspective, I think we we, we all have a responsibility to help, uh, especially in some of these underserved areas, uh, to, to try to figure out ways to make sure that we can provide um, those people in those communities uh, the same um, access that, that you have in other areas. I think that's a really important point. I agree. I agree. And the, one point of this uh, has to do with our content and what we make available and how. So on the one hand, I think there's been a steady upsurge in interest in accessibility. I mean this in terms of disability. So, for example, making sure that audio or video content has a transcript or making sure that images have alt tags so that people with visual disabilities can make sense of them. Uh, yeah. You know, Checking interfaces to make sure that people who have fine motor disabilities can use them. Uh, so I think there's a push for that as well. A, a good friend of mine once um, addressed publishers by saying, publishers, would you decide not to sell your books to people with red hair? And they said, no, that would be insane. All right, well, why aren't you selling your books to people who are blind? You know, it's a, it's an interesting thought experiment. And the same is true, of course, of academic content. Uh, I think also there's the move for open access, um, both in terms of our scholarship that we publish, as well as our educational resources. So that when I, uh, when I teach a class and I have handouts and I have a syllabus and I have notes that I'd like to share with my students, if I can make those available to the world, um, this may in a small way be useful, but if all instructors do this, then this gives more and more resources for the average person to be able to dig into. Uh, and institutions can and have supported that financially. We've seen governments do this as well. And so the, on the one hand, open education resources growing is a real boon. And I think open access and scholarly publication is also a boon. We saw that to go back to COVID. Uh, a year and a half ago when this kicked off, a bunch of leading publishers and uh, publishing companies, uh, like, you know, Nature or Elsevier, uh, very carefully made public, out from behind paywalls, research on pandemics, on pulmonology, on, on epidemiology, and all everything related to COVID, which is a good step. Um, and yet the paywalls often still persist. So I, I think we may see a more of a public demand uh, to get access to uh, scholarship in an open way. 
Yeah, I want to take you back for a second because you mentioned sort of the built environment and, and as one of the, the places where you saw um, a significant amount of potential change and you had mentioned more outside structures, which leads me sort of to this perspective in regards to, you know, how critical do you think the in-person component is? And, and, and can we accomplish what we're able to accomplish in person with virtual tools like Zoom or Teams or whatever? the medium may be. But but that overall personal component in, in that in-person space, how important do you think that is? I think it's vital. And I think on average, we can recapture it. So I'm saying this on average. Um, there are times mm-hmm. where we do worse. Um, I, I, was, I was talking to a professor at an institution I promised I would not name, uh, who told me that she believed she was by law required to lecture four hours a week on Zoom. And, and I tried gently to point out that there was no such law, and this was nonsense and terrible for her students, but she would not let this go. She was insistent on it. That's definitely an inferior experience. I mean, four hours of lecture is not necessarily a great thing by itself, but doing over Zoom is a real waste of the platform and what you can do with it. Um, and there are other instances of us doing these things badly. Uh, but the flip side is we can also do in-person better. I don't know who first said it, um, but the experience of being a student in a lecture hall with 100, 200, 500 students is distance learning. You know, if the professor is a small postage stamp at the bottom of the class and you don't really have an opportunity for interaction, this is YouTube. This is what the YouTube experience is like. But YouTube, at least, you can pause, you can rewind, you know, you can, there's other things you can do. Uh, we can, I mean, one of the things that happens with when Americans confront new technologies and new experiences is that we tend to romanticize the past and we romanticize the present. And we do this a lot. Um, and thinking, oh, that personal experience is so great. Well, it isn't always. Uh, there are a lot of people who are not good at instruction, and it's not often their fault uh, because graduate programs rarely and historically almost never train graduate students in how to teach well. And the professional opportunities for doing so once you become a faculty member are not always that present or that rewarded. So there's a lot of in-person teaching, which is lousy or just substandard or just not very good. And we can do better than that online. Plus, there are other things that we can do with digital technology in person to enhance the in-person experience. So a lecture hall with hundreds of people. Brian, tell me, what did you get? Uh, what did you study when you were in college? Uh, marketing at Northeastern University in Boston. Great, great. So if you're teaching a marketing class and you've got 300 students there, um, I mentioned before, that is basically distance learning. But you can use technology to make it better. So you can use live polling, for example, using any number of technologies, including index cards. But it's much more powerful when you use a tool like, you know, Poll Everywhere or Kahoot or if you use clickers, that you can really get students participating more. Uh, Eric Mazur at Harvard, for example, pioneered a pedagogy where you take that lecture hall of hundreds of people and then assign them problems and break them into small groups so then when they argue with each other and, and learn and develop and then reconnect in order to reproduce all that learning together. I'm not doing enough justice. Eric is, uh, is quite a, um, a brilliant at this. Um, and there's still more we can do. I, by the way, that clicker and polling, in fields other than marketing, it can be even more powerful. Uh, think about fields where there's a lot of phobia in the audience, like math. 
where people, you know, a professor says, oh, I solved an equation. What do you think? And people in the audience are like, oh, I have no idea what I just saw. That's, I don't know. But they don't want to say it because it's embarrassing. Uh, or think about classes and sexuality. Uh, where you know, asking people questions about sex, my God, it's proverbially the most embarrassing thing. Uh, I had a, a, I saw a wonderful example about 15 years ago in Ohio uh, where a professor in poli-sci played a game with students. And this is a small class. It's about 20 students. And he had them all play a game where they're all in charge of a mythical country and each had to decide how they were going to allocate their budget towards either social services or war. Guns or butter was the choice. So, all right, you have 10 money units. How do you allocate it? And they went around the room, and one of them said, oh, eight to butter and two to guns. You know, nine to social services, one to guns. Then the next week he did it, but he pulled them instead using handheld devices. The response was a complete 180. People said, you know, defense, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And he asked them, what, what happened? Did, did you just change your minds? And they all said, no, no, we, we thought we would look bad to each other and to you uh, if we looked like we were too warlike. So, I mean, you can kind of dig into students' thinking and attitudes and learning. And my gosh, that's a great pedagogical thing to do. So I think the physical classroom, there's a lot more we can do. Um, and when that's reproduced online, if I'm at home or, you know, in a, in a cafe or I'm, a, I'm being driven somewhere in a car or wherever, we can use the pedagogy plus the technologies to really enhance the experience. And if we do it right, that's a great win for higher education. Yeah, it's really interesting because as, you know, as a business, even looking at, I mean, it really becomes... Um, more of a focus on how we engage with our audiences, right? So whether that's a student, uh, a faculty member engaging with a student or a business engaging with its customers, um, I think more than ever, we just have to make sure that we are not sitting back and relying on potentially things that have worked for us in the past, but being sensitive to the fact that this is a new time and we do all have to sort of step our game up a bit um, in the way in which we approach things. Because there is now more than ever, I think, um, a willingness um, in many cases, not in every case, but in many cases, to, to look at things differently. And, you know, we talked a little bit about students here, right? And we've spent a lot of time talking about the student body itself. I'm curious from the perspective of the educators, um, because I know, you know, I've been aware and around the education space for a while and having conversations. And, and, and many times, um, some of what you hear as pushback is the reluctancy from potentially a faculty or, uh, or to, and, and their willingness to really try the technology aspect of it, or, you know, they've had success teaching a class for a certain period of time and they've done it a certain way and they'll continue to do that. But as time changes, you know, uh, how, how do you see educators changing? Um, we've talked a lot about the, the student body, but, but how do you see the educators themselves? And, and is, is, is that, that example that I gave in regards to the reluctancy on the educator side, is that, is that true? Or, or is that something that just is sort of a, a myth that's sort of out there and that's not always the case? Oh, it's a great question. Uh, the reluctance comes from many, many levels and, uh, and, and, and we can assess their validity or the legitimacy if we like. Um, 
you know, we have the simple human reluctance to change. Uh, we have the uh, problem that faculty are hired to be experts, to be the great experts in their classrooms. And using technology can risk blowing away that reputation completely. Uh, we have faculty who may be politically opposed to technologies from all kinds of different backgrounds. It might be that they are opposed to what Shoshana Zuboff calls surveillance capitalism, the business model that we've seen now from, say, Google uh, and Facebook. It may be that they um, have a critique of where the digital world as a whole is going, and that may play out in terms of what they see as uh, addiction to cell phones, or it may be what they see as uh, Sherry Turkle um, once charged, that people are socializing online and de-socializing face-to-face. I mean, and it may also be that they just don't have any incentive to do this in their work, that their work may be rewarded for their scholarship, and so they'll happily proceed along that line, or their work may be rewarded by student evaluations, and they fear that if they use a technology and it goes wrong, that their evaluations will crumble. Um you know, the majority, the biggest population of faculty in the United States is adjuncts. And these are people who are hired uh, and or not hired on a semester by semester, class by class basis. Uh, they are paid much less. They have usually no benefits and very little institutional support. Now, if they are told to teach with technology, they often will simply because they see it as a condition of employment. Uh, on the other hand, they tend to lack a lot of the support, everything from IT and pedagogical support to just not having offices. So, I mean, the, we, we can probe this landscape um, still further. There's all kinds of, of, of issues with it, but but that resistance is, is still there, that reluctance, that hesitancy, if I can borrow the term from COVID vaccines, is still there. I, I think how you, your first question, though, was how have faculty changed I think one important thing is to circle back to your earlier point. Um, Going through the pandemic, uh, faculty have, to some degree, experienced loss. Uh, They may have been infected and be suffering from long COVID. They may have lost family members. Uh, If if we think about faculty and educators who are older, they may have gone through the real fear of being infected and risking serious damage, if not death. Um, And they also may have experienced financial loss. Uh, And I think we don't have good data on this. We do not know how many faculty, staff, and students have been infected by COVID. We simply don't. Uh, We don't know how many have died. Uh, We have no idea how many have long COVID. So all we can do is just kind of extrapolate from other data, which itself isn't that great. Um, But that loss is there. Uh, And then for some people... They really get into teaching. They really love that that classroom experience. And I completely understand. I have the same love myself. The the feeling you get when the light bulb goes on over a student's head, like in a cartoon, there's nothing like it in the world, right? The, the having to think on your feet and having to share stuff that you're passionate about, you know, be it cell biology or uh, French grammar, is wonderful. I mean, it's a great feeling. And, and for a lot of those faculty, having to do that online has been a step down, a loss. Um, so I think for a lot of faculty, they're, they're grappling with that. And they often haven't had a lot of support. By, by that, I mean they, they haven't had extra time off. They haven't had course releases. They've had to grapple with everything, kind of doing it on the fly. Um, so I, I think that's something that that's a, a burden that a lot of educators um, carry. On the other hand, they want to teach. They want to do well at that. And I think 
what I mentioned before about that rededication to improving teaching as well as that all-around student support, I think they want to do that. And I think you'll find more faculty reaching out to campus medical health services, mental health services, excuse me, uh, to help to either learn how to handle students in class and better support them or how to get, connect them uh, with better mental health facilities. Um, I, I think as well, depending on where the faculty member is in their career, they may want to either hang on to the digital world and either continue teaching that way or apply the lessons they learned from it. I, just, just for example, if you're trying to connect with students um, asynchronously, you have to pitch yourself at students when you're writing responses or when you're cutting a video or an audio for them. And that attention, the tricks you learn to do that, can really play out nicely in the classroom. I mean, for example, simply using students' names more often uh, can be a real good way to establish respect and, and presence. Um, and then you're going to have faculty who want to leave this all behind. Uh, what uh, at least one blogger called the snapback idea, that they desperately want to go back to fall 2019. Um, you know, maybe as far forward as January 2020. They want to have that experience again. And those faculty are going to try to get past this just like people who stay in the hospital for a procedure, want to get out of that hospital and not revisit it ever again. Uh, so I, I think you'll have both of those attitudes among the faculty in American higher education. Well, Brian, I have to say, I really appreciate uh, your perspective. Um, there's there's so many areas, uh, and we'll probably have to have you come back a guest, as a guest again, because there's so many areas that we didn't touch that I would love to touch. Um, but uh, I really appreciate the insight. Um, and, and what I would say is, you know, for the educators that are out there, thank you. Uh, we do appreciate uh, and understand the challenging times um, that you have been through over the past year and a half. And and uh, we look forward to much uh, success in the coming school year. And, and more importantly, or equally as important, I would say, for the students that are out there, um, wish you the best of luck in this school year. Um, we're sort of counting on you to show us what resilience really looks like and, and how we can get past this. But Brian, thank you again. I, I really appreciate your time today. Well, thank you, Brian. Uh, thank you, my namesake, for being a great host, having wonderful questions. And I really appreciate the opportunity to get to to connect with your audience. I hope everybody stays safe and well. Thanks, Brian. And before we sign off, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can help us grow by visiting our feeds on iTunes to rate, review, and subscribe. Or if you're listening on Spotify, be sure to hit follow. That's it for us. I'm Brian Raleigh, and that was another episode of The Big Ray Think. <laughs>